Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now cause your word to do its work in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who rejoice in you, people who see the world that you have made and who see in it the display of your glory and your power and your wisdom. And Father, we ask that you would also use this to make us confident that you are going to make all things new. You are going to renew the world, wipe away every tear, banish death forever, and accomplish every one of your purposes. Lord, help us to live like we believe that's true. In the name of Jesus, amen. I would invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 104. And as we turn to Psalm 104, uh, I, I want to observe that the last time we were in Psalms together, which was several weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 103, and I want to read you the first and last statements of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's Psalm 103, verse 1. And then he's, the psalmist says it again in Psalm 103, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then at the end of verse 22 of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then, as you're looking at this, look at the first words of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then again, look at the last words of Psalm 104, verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So these two Psalms, Psalms 103 and 102, are linked together by this call on the part of the psalmist to bless the Lord. In Psalm 103, the focus was on God's forgiveness, God's mercy. We might say the focus is on, on redemption. In Psalm 104, the focus changes, and what the psalmist is going to focus on in Psalm 104 is creation. So in Psalm 103, the psalmist is commanding himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then what he does is he meditates on the reality of God's forgiveness. And, and we should respond this way, shouldn't we? We should follow the example of the psalmist, and we should command our souls. We talked when we were in Psalm 103 about how the, the, the word bless means to adore on bended knee. We should adore God on bended knee for the fact that he forgives sinners. And, and when we don't feel like it, we should command our souls to do it. That's, that's the message of Psalm 103. The message of Psalm 104 is, look at the created world and bless the Lord, O my soul. Again, this command, adore the Lord on bended knee, addressed to the soul, because of God's work in creation. That's what we have here in Psalm 104. Uh, as I was thinking about this psalm, I was thinking about what the psalmist has done. Uh, what he's done is he's meditated on what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us. He's meditated on this incomparable accomplishment that God has brought about of making the world. And in response to that achievement, he's written a song praising God for it. It would be kind of like if the, uh, if the Cleveland Cavaliers 
were to somehow to defeat the Golden State Warriors and someone were to write a song about it. But this is a lot bigger deal, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about the creation of the world, not a league championship. Uh, in some ways, you could compare it to the Star Spangled Banner, right? Uh, there's a battle, there's a victory, and because of the ideals and the, the things that the nation stands for, a song is written in response to this. Or you could think of, of what happens with Homer and uh, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, these, these great stories, this long poem is written in celebration of them. That's what we've got here in Psalm 104, a celebration of God's mighty act in creation. And yet, as with all great art, the, the art that commemorates the achievement is also pointing beyond itself to something, something that's anticipated, and, and we'll, we'll see that as we, as we continue through the psalm. Look at Psalm 104, verse 1. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he says that because he feels the meaning of the next phrase. He says, O Lord my God, you are very great. So because of God's greatness, the psalmist is commanding himself to bless the Lord. And then he starts to illustrate God's greatness for us. And the first thing he says at the end of verse 1 is, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. This is obviously a figurative statement, isn't it? It's not to be taken literally because splendor and majesty are not like clothing that you can put on. And God is not, he, he's, he doesn't have a physical body. God the Father, he, he's immaterial, he's invisible. He doesn't have a physical body that he's going to clothe himself with splendor and majesty. And yet... And yet, there's a truth here, isn't there? God wears splendor and majesty because they emanate out from him. And the psalmist is perceiving this, and his response is, you are very great. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he goes on to describe the Lord more in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2. He says, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Now think about that. Can you do that? Can you take light and put it on like you would put on a coat? Do you know anybody that can do this? Can you think of any divine power who can do this? There is nobody but Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who can cover himself with light as with a garment. Now because of the, the content of the rest of the psalm, and because of the way that this psalm is going to unfold, I'm confident in saying that what the psalmist is, is reflecting on here is Genesis 1-3, where the Lord says, let there be light, and there was light. And, and the psalmist is describing that incident as, as the Lord clothing himself, putting on light as though it is his garment. And then right after that, in Genesis chapter 1, um, what the Lord does next, it's a curious description. And, and um, I, you know, I think there are aspects of this that are mysterious. I think there are aspects of this that, that um, we will never have all the answers to. But, but what uh, Moses describes in Genesis 1 is the Lord separating the waters above from the waters below and making uh, what the Hebrew word there is rakia. Uh, they, they, they translate this word in the ESV, expanse. The Lord makes an expanse between the waters above and the waters below. And 
When I say this is mysterious, I say it because I don't know what those waters above are. I don't know if it's talking about the atmosphere or something like that. Maybe we'll never know. Uh, Some people have suggested that maybe this was a layer of water that at Noah's flood actually collapsed and flooded the world. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But, but Moses tells us in Genesis 1 that the Lord has separated the waters above from the waters below and that he's created this expanse and then he names the expanse heaven. Now look at what the psalmist says here in the middle of verse 2. And that, that happens, by the way. Uh, you know, he, he makes light and he names the light day and he names the darkness night. That's the first day. And then the making of the heavens that I've just described, that's the second day. So this is day two of creation, Psalm 104.2, the second part of the verse, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So the psalmist is describing the Lord first, clothing himself, putting on light like a garment, let there be light, and then stretching out the heavens like a tent. And, and the tent language and the stretching out of the tent language, this sounds a lot like what people would do when they would, let's say, set up the tabernacle. And so probably what the psalmist is working with here is he's not intending to give a, a scientific description of the way that God made the world, right? The psalmist is not... In, he's, He's not a modern scientific thinker. He's not blessed with everything that we now know. What he's thinking in terms of is the world as a cosmic temple. He's thinking in in terms of God building himself a house, and that house is the universe. And that universe is the place where he will dwell in holiness with those created to serve him and, and know him and enjoy his presence. That's the way the psalmist is thinking about the world, as he describes the Lord stretching out the heavens like a tent. And then he goes on in verse 3. He says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Now, the word rendered chambers, you could translate this, the beams of his upper chambers. So maybe, again, I don't know, maybe what's being described here is the Lord building some kind of heavenly temple on that upper layer of water, you know, above the expanse. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm not sure, but at any rate, we can say there's cosmic temple imagery being used here, isn't there? The Lord is building himself a house out of the created world. And then he moves from his clothing to his dwelling, now to his transportation. Look at the middle of verse 3. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Now, I think in, in part, one aspect of this is a sort of mocking of the false gods. It, it's, it's, it's kind of as though um, uh, the psalmist is looking at Baal, who was supposed to be the storm god. And Baal was supposed to mount his chariot and ride through the clouds and bring the thunder and then send the rain. And it's as though the psalmist is saying, you falsely attributed this to Baal. The, the true rider of the clouds is the Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of the world, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers. This is, you could also translate that word messengers, angels. He makes his angels uh, winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Uh, so the psalmist is describing the Lord's incomparable greatness. And and what he's doing is is moving through the days of creation, and and we're we're kind of through day two here, 
And what the psalmist is intent to do is provoke the exclamation found in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like the Lord our God? That's what the psalmist wants us to feel. Who is like the Lord our God? I, I don't know what's going on in everybody in this room's life. Uh, you know, there are people that we've talked about that are leaving today. They're going into new, uncertain situations. Um, I, I don't doubt that there are those of you here this morning and you feel uh, like sin is getting the better of you. You feel like you've been fighting against this thing and it just keeps whipping you. Some of you feel like maybe uh, your hopes um, are not coming to pass. You wanted things to work out a certain way and it's not working out. And, and the psalmist is saying to us, follow me, follow in my footsteps, bless the Lord. And then he wants us to fix our eyes on the Lord and to think about the Lord's mighty acts in creation and respond, who is like the Lord our God? I know it doesn't answer every question. I know it doesn't address every problem that you're having. But if you know the God that can do this, is there anything he can't do? The psalmist is now going to move into day three. In verse 5, on the third day of creation, as Chris read earlier in Genesis 1, uh, what the Lord did, uh, it's, it's like he had this, this massive ball of rock that was covered with water, and he separated the waters. He caused the waters to recede so that the dry lands could appear. And, and the words spoken in Genesis 1-9, the Lord says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And the psalmist treats this, he, he takes this whole uh, idea of the Lord making the dry land here in verses 5 through 9. But again, he's going to speak of it as though it's a cosmic temple. So look at what he says in verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Now we know scientifically today, right, that the earth doesn't have foundations, Okay? There, there aren't cinder blocks or there's not a layer of concrete that the earth has been set upon. And yet, we also know that the earth is held firmly into place, isn't it? It is exactly where it needs to be. And it's amazing the way it works. Uh, you know, the, the earth is, is at just the right distance from the, the sun, tilted at just the right angle, and weighted just so that it will continue to swing around this massive orb of the sun. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Again, the foundation language is coming from, from temple imagery. And um, what the psalmist is saying is that the Lord is such a master builder that his construction will never totter. It's never going to move. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. When we lived in, in Houston, um, we, we moved in to this area of town that we were later told this place used to be a swamp, uh, and, they, and they drained all the water out of it. And, um, and we, we started noticing that at the door frames, you know, at the corner of the door frames, there would be these cracks in the drywall, <laughs> and, and we, we were not trained to look for these things. And then, and then uh, we look at the windows outside on the, on the side of the house, and where the windows were, there were these cracks that ran down through the brick. These are telltale signs of foundation issues. 
And, um, and we start talking to our neighbors, you know, we're like, have you, have you seen this kind of thing? Oh yeah, this is, this is always, this is a feature of life in Houston. Did your realtor not draw your attention to these things? Did the inspector not point these out? And we're like, no. I mean, it turned out we had to spend thousands of dollars for people to come in. And what they do is they, they, they drill down into the ground. They put these supports on, on, at various places around the foundation because the ground there is always shifting. It's always moving. Everything's cracking. And it's a mess. We, go, we call up the, the realtor. I didn't, I didn't see it. Oh, come on, lady. You live in Houston. How could you not see this? And, and we talked to the inspector. Oh, I didn't notice any foundation. You know what? They're trying to make a sale. Uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord is a builder who, who can be trusted. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And then look at verse 6. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. He's talking about the, the waters here that, that covered the globe. The waters stood above the mountains. This is before the Lord calls, commands them to recede. And then that, that statement that we read back in Genesis 1-9, uh, let the waters be gathered, that's treated like a rebuke to the waters here in verse 7. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. So the Lord is so powerful that he commands the waters and they obey. He is so powerful. We, we got this. We got a dog this this week on Monday, and he, it's it's really fun to to play with this little dog, and um, and I've been leashing him to my belt and and having him sit you know right next to me, just stay with me while I'm I'm sitting at at my computer, and there's a rug under there that he thinks he ought to get to chew on, and so when when he puts his he starts putting his mouth on this rug, and I'll just growl at him. <clears throat> He immediately stops. It's like he looks around, you know, like his mother has just told him, that's not for you. At the sound of your thunder, the waters took to flight. You know, the Lord, the Lord thunders at the waters, and those waters are like, we got to get out of here. This is terrifying. Verse 8, as a result of this, as, as a result of the Lord rebuking the waters, thundering at the waters, and they move away. Verse 8, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down. It's as though you can see the waters draining off the dry lands. And the mountains have this appearance as though they're rising. And the valleys, it looks like they're sinking to the place, verse 8, that you appointed for them. And then verse 9, this is remarkable, isn't it? You set a boundary the psalmist says to the Lord, that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Why is it that the waters of the oceans don't flood the continents? Because the Lord set a boundary for them, this far and no farther. You cannot pass this boundary. And they obey. How did God summon light into being? On what did the Lord hang the curtains of the heavens? When he laid the beams of his roof chambers on the waters, how did he stabilize them? You know, if you put a beam on a water, it's not really going to, it's not going to stay, is it? When, when, when he set the foundations of the earth, what did he sink those foundations into? To anchor them. How did he manage the water supply so that it obeyed his command to recede? Can there be any limit to the power of the one who accomplished these mighty deeds? 
As we're going to see next, you know, I, I hope that, that the upshot of us thinking on these things together is you begin to think there is no limit to God's power. There is nothing the Lord cannot do. But this is not just raw force and majesty on display. There is tender care, as we see in verses 10 through 13. There is tender care in the way that the Lord makes provision for everything that he's created. Look at verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give, tr- give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, beside these streams of water, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. Now, why would the Lord talk about wild donkeys and the birds? Why would he say that? What comes to your mind? When, when you think about the Lord, let's say, providing for the birds, what comes to your mind? I mean, I, I think of something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Look at the sparrows. They don't toil or spin. I think the psalmist is going through all the detail to say, look at how meticulous the Lord has been in creation. Look at the way that the Lord has provided for all the inhabitants of heaven and earth. And, and think about the attention to detail this required. Think about the concern for everything he has made that this required. And then apply this to your own heart. If he cares for sparrows this way. Verse 13 they render this, from your lofty abode you water the mountains. But that, 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 that word that's translated here, lofty abode, is the same word that was used in verse 3 to refer to the upper chambers. So from the upper chambers that the Lord built from himself, we might say from his heavenly temple, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. God satisfies all creation. God has displayed unparalleled power, and he also shows tender care. Now, um, at, to this point, the psalmist has, has tracked pretty closely with the days of creation. Um, we had uh, day one with let there be light. We had um, day two with the making of the heavens there in verse two. We moved into day three with the Uh, causing of the dry lands to come. And now, in verses 14 to 18, we're kind of in this central section of the psalm, and it's as though everything's a jumble. But the reason everything's a jumble, I think, is because what the psalmist is going to talk about here is humanity, man. And and I think the psalmist has gone out of order. So, in other words, he's not going to continue through days 4, 5, and 6. Day 6 is where man is created. He, he doesn't do that because he wants man in the middle of this psalm. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's doing a ring construction here where they're going to be matching elements, and he wants his talk about humanity in all creation right in the center of, of this poem that he's writing. So verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. And this is exactly what we read in, in Genesis 1 in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. That's also on the third day. Um, So you cause grass to grow for the livestock. Now, if you think about it, a wild donkey is a wild animal. 
Livestock, are, these are cultivated animals. And, and then he continues in verse 14, and plants for man to cultivate. This is the exact language used in Genesis 2.15 when, when we're told that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. The, 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 tra- the words translated to work it are, are translated here to cultivate. It's the same terminology in the original. Plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Uh, What the psalmist is talking about is the way that the man can cultivate the land and he can grow things like wheat, which which he can make bread from. And he can grow things like um, uh, olive trees from which he can get oil. And he can grow things like grapes from which he can get uh, wine to gladden his heart. So the psalmist is is going through in detail the way that the Lord has provided everything necessary, not merely for man to be sustained, but for him to be satisfied, for him to have a good life. Then he continues in verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he, the Lord, planted. I think he's got in mind Genesis 2, 8 through 10 where the Lord planted a garden in the east, and then the Lord caused uh, rivers to flow through there so that everything could have life. Verse 17, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Again, it's like he's just going through this list of elements saying, look at everything God has done to provide even for the storks. The Lord has provided for a vast array of creatures with astonishing specificity. And he's put man in the midst of the whole thing to, to have dominion over the earth, to cultivate it, to work it, and keep it. Now, a moment ago, you know, we were thinking about how we apply a psalm like this to, to our own hearts. And, and maybe I don't need to say this, but, but here's a point of application for you that I would urge you to take with you and, and begin to practice immediately as you exit this, this building this morning. Examine the world. Look at it. Look at the sky. Look at the trees. Look at the dirt. It's amazing what you'll see. If you keep looking, it is amazing what you'll see. And what this will help you to do is look beyond your own circumstances. We've all got concerns. We've all got troubles. We've all got stuff that we're thinking about that's weighing on us for this week. But if you start looking at the dirt, you know what, you know what kind of thoughts will come into your mind? This dirt is going to be here long after my life is done. This, this sky is going to be there long after my deadlines have passed. And, and this, is, this is going to cause you to reorient and, and, and reconfigure your perspective. And it will probably cause you to be renewed and re-energized and enable you to, to go at things with the energy that, that only the Lord can give you. Uh, after that middle section in verses 14 through 18 where the psalmist talks about man's role in the whole business, he's now going to go back in order. So um, it was on day four that the Lord created the great lights, the moon and the sun and the stars. 
Look at verse 19. He, he's, he's back in order now. He's two day four. Psalm 104, verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. The sun knows exactly where to go. Um, I like this textbook that I've re- referenced before, my, my son Jake's uh, uh, book here. And uh, in this book, there, there are astonishing uh, realities about the sun. Um, this is amazing. Um, the solar system is made up of our sun, eight planets and their moons, and thousands of other bits of matter called asteroids and comets. Gravity holds all these things in place near our sun. Listen to this. The sun itself contains nearly 99.9% of all the materials in its system. 99.9% of all the material in the solar system is contained in the sun. That thing is massive, vast. I mean, we don't even have words that fit how big the thing must be. And, and then there are these, these remarkable realities about the moon. I mean, one of the, one of the, thing, one of the ways that the moon marks the seasons it, is it also marks the tides. And if the moon were not there to, to, to have this gravitational pull on the waters, the, the currents in the oceans would, would, would stagnate. And all the things dying in the oceans that, I mean, I'm not going to read you this quote, but this guy, this, this author, he quotes a scientist who speculates on what, were ha- what would happen if the oceans were indeed stagnant. It would be a vast graveyard. And all of this rotted stuff and all of the, the gas and the the mess and the decay would be at the bottom of the ocean, and what would eventually happen, they speculate, is somehow uh, there would be sort of an upturning of all this stuff and all this rotten filth and stench and, and life-killing goo would rise to the, to, the, to the surface of the ocean, and it would have a devastating effect, effect upon all creation. So it's necessary for the moon to be marking the seasons and the tides and moving things around. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. Verse 20. Now the psalmist is going to talk about uh, the night and the day. He, he says here in verse 20, you make, the dar- you make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. I don't know a whole lot about lions, but I think it's correct that they hunt at night. And then in the day, when the sun comes up, look at verse 22, when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. And then guess what happens? Verse 23, man goes about his work and to his labor until the evening. So so there's this rhythm that God has built into creation. You have these nocturnal cats that hunt through the night, and then uh, when the sun rises, people come out to do their work. God's creation is varied and surprising, well-appointed and fulsome, as specific as it is gigantic. And through the whole, the Lord shows his ingenuity, his tender concern, and his never-failing ability to accomplish what he sets out to achieve. In this next section, in verses 24 through 30, the psalmist is going to introduce death after he's celebrated the Lord's work. Everything he said to this point and everything he's about to say prompts him to say in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. This is a a right response to God's creation. How much you have accomplished. 
And then he says it in the middle of verse 24, in wisdom you have made them all. God has done everything with such astonishing and incomparable skill and wisdom. And then at the end of verse 24, they render this, the earth is full of your creatures. Uh, that word, that, the, the way this is phrased in Hebrew makes it more specific that what the psalmist is affirming here is that God possesses everything that he's made. God owns the world that he made. The world belongs to you, Lord. And now he's going to catalog things. Verse 25, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And here the psalmist is again moving in order because the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day. And then on the fifth day, uh, we read about the sea creatures and even the sea monsters. And the psalmist is about to talk about those. Verse 26, there go the ships and Leviathan, this huge monster, this massive fish, which you formed to play in it. And then he makes the point in verse 27 that everything is dependent upon the Lord. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. Okay, so two points here. First, all life depends on God to stay alive, right? The animals can only gather what the Lord has opened his hand to give them. Second, the Lord's pleasure has a direct impact upon even the emotional life of the animals. Verse 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. Now, I want to pause here and say, uh, the psalmist could validly celebrate God's glory in creation, right? God's glory in creation deserves a psalm like this. But that's not all the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is also linking this celebration of God's glory in creation to the broader story of the Bible. And, and we're about to get into how he does that. So the broader story of the Bible is that God made the world and everything was good. And then man sinned, man introduced sin into the world, and the consequence of that sin was death. But in the promises that God made, beginning from Genesis 3.15 we begin to, to see hopes articulated and expectations begin to, to get stirred and provoked that God is going to overcome sin and overcome death and cleanse the defiled world and make all things new and accomplish the purposes that he set out from the beginning to bring to pass. The psalmist is now going to enter into that. And, and here's what I think he's doing. What I think he's doing is... Um, We've been, we've been working through these psalms, and we saw in Psalm 89 that there's, there's kind of a, a threat to the Davidic covenant. It's like Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple has been burned down, the king of David's line has been taken off the throne. And then we saw in Psalm 90, there's this mosaic intercession that, that quotes the mosaic intercession at Mount Sinai. Remember Exodus 32, golden calf episode, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy Israel. Moses says, Relent, Lord. Turn from your burning anger. That's quoted in Psalm 90, verse 13. So it's kind of like Psalm 89. I'm going to destroy the house of David. I'm done with Israel. And then here's this prayer of Moses again. Relent, Lord. Turn from your burning anger. And then you get these affirmations of the promises to David. 
And Psalm 103, we looked at last time we were in the Psalms together, celebrating God's forgiveness. Psalm 104, celebrating God's creation. What do you think that implies? We're looking forward to a new creation. That's what that implies. Look at, look at what he says here in verse 29. When you take away their breath, the breath of the animals, they die. Why does death, why does death exist in the world? Because of sin. Everything dies under God's judgment. They die and return to their dust. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And in Genesis 2, uh, the Lord is creating all the animals out of the ground, it says. So the Lord takes away the breath of life, and they die and return to their dust. Then verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. Do you remember how Genesis 1 starts? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? You send forth your spirit, they are created. The psalmist is recalling the initial creation to point forward to the one that's going to come after the end of death. So, so death, and then new, the word... They are created there. That's bara, the term used in Genesis 1 for, for creation. The word that only the God of the Bible is ever the one who does that action in the Bible. He's the only one who ever does the work of bara. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. That renewal, I think, is pointing to the renewal of all things. It's pointing to the cleansing of the defiled land. And it's like the psalmist is saying, death is going to be overcome by life. Defilement is going to be removed by purification. The ruination of creation will be undone by the renewal of the world. And this fits, doesn't it, with the, the whole message of the Old and New Testaments, that God is going to raise the dead and make heavens and earth new. The God capable of accomplishing creation, as we know it now, cannot fail to complete what he set out to do. The power and wisdom illustrated all through Psalm 104, seen in the world around us, he can be trusted to vanquish death with resurrection, to cleanse the world of every defilement, and to make all things new. If you're here this morning and... Um, this is news to you. Praise the Lord. We want, we want to get this message out. God is in the process of making the world new. God is in the process of defeating sin and death. You want to get on board? Here's what you need to do. You want to join this team? You want to be part of the restoration, the renovation? Here's what you need to do. You need to turn from all the stuff that God has forbidden. You need to turn from all the ways that you look to some other power to do for you what only the God of the Bible can do for you. You need to turn away from all that, renounce all that, and you need to place your hope fully and completely in the way that God has accomplished salvation through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And then you know what? This story becomes your story. And this psalm becomes the song that you can sing in response to this incomparable God. The world is not a place that began in a cosmic explosion and it's just sort of uh, petering out and somehow achieving vast order, and life is just evolving along the way. That is not the true story of the world. This is the true story of the world, what we're reading here. And if God 
is indeed going to do this. Is not the prayer in verse 31 appropriate? May the glory of the Lord endure forever. It's going to. It's going to. And, and the psalmist here is praying for what he knows God is going to accomplish. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. It's as though everything in the psalmist is resonating with who God is and with the reason for which God made the world. And he wants God to be pleased with what God has made. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And now again, he's going to describe the glory of the Lord. This God who spoke and it was, he also looks and it trembles. Who looks on the earth and it trembles in verse 32. And then it's as though the touch of the Lord causes a volcanic reaction in the mountains. He touches the mountains and they smoke. And again, the psalmist says here in verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. If we were, if we were working through this in Hebrew, I think a valid translation of that phrase, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live, you could render that, I will sing to the Lord with my life. I will sing to the Lord with my, not with just the words that I join in the chorus on here at church on Sunday morning, but throughout all of life, my life is going to be a song of praise to God. Then he continues in verse 33, I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Verse 34, may my meditation, which includes this psalm, be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. This, this is another opportunity for us to say, what do I meditate on? What do I think about? When, when, when I, I shut off the screen and maybe I'm sitting alone and, and things are finally quiet, where does my mind go? Is my, is my meditation pleasing to the Lord? This psalmist recognizes that if this is who God is, if he's the creator of the world, we want every thought, every meditation, every musing to be pleasing to him. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And then I think verse 35 is another indication that this guy has the new creation in view back in verse 30. Because when we get over to Revelation 21 and 22, do you remember what you read about that new creation? Only the holy are there, right? The liars, the murderers, all the sinners... They're in the lake of fire. And nothing unclean ever enters into that city, that renewed land. Look at verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. The psalmist is praying for what the Lord has said he's going to do. That's going to come to pass. If that's you, this is a, this is a warning for you. You need to turn. You need to turn from the thing that, things that God has forbidden. You need to turn from the corruption of your soul with meditation on things that you lust for that God has said you shall not fill in the blank. You need to turn from your sin. You need to get on board with Jesus. Trust Him and make this your story. Obey this command here at the, at the end of verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then... Uh, at the end of verse 35, this is one of my favorite words in the Bible. This literally says, hallelujah. That's what praise the Lord is. It's, a, it's a, a command to a group of people. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means in Hebrew. There it is. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is a magnificent psalm. And, and I want to give you three points of application as we conclude. Uh, but first, I want to liken uh, our, something that, from, from literature that I love uh, to what I think we have in this, in this psalm and, and the way that we think about with the way we think about the Lord and the way we think about what's going on in this psalm. So I want to tell you about Harry Potter, <laughs> okay? Um, in the Harry Potter stories, um, all along the way, Harry is being taught by Dumbledore. Even when Harry doesn't realize he's being taught, he's being taught. And then in the sixth book, Dumbledore says to Harry, um, We're gonna, you're going to have private lessons with me this year in school, Harry. And, and so Harry goes to Dumbledore's office, and Dumbledore teaches him these things that he's going to need to know to accomplish his mission. But when, when Harry begins the lesson, it doesn't feel like Dumbledore's teaching. It just feels like he's telling him a story. And, and along the way, along the way, you get these glimmers of, of the, the, the matchless, incomparable abilities of Albus Dumbledore. I mean, he can do things that no other wizard can do. He has the ability to walk into a cave and discern traces of magic and know who did the magic in that cave. And, and, and Dumbledore has somehow investigated what's going on in the wider story, which I don't want to go into because I don't want to give spoilers. He, he's investigated these things in, in ways that make you think, who, who else could have learned all this? Who else could have found out all this? And what this does is it, it raises your estimation of Dumbledore's greatness. And, and then, um, as the story continues, and Dumbledore is taken out of the picture at one point, and Harry begins to have questions, and he begins to have doubts, and he begins to wonder if Dumbledore was really helping him. And, and then once the story is resolved, eventually all of Dumbledore's plans, which were, which were intricate, they were detailed, they relied upon the ingenuity of the people involved, all of his plans, his, his, his um, unstopping love, his goodness, his constant concern, all of it's revealed, and he's vindicated. Why am I telling you about Dumbledore? Well, because there's somebody greater than Dumbledore who's teaching us all the time if we're believers in Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, if we're reading the scriptures, it's like private lessons with Dumbledore. And I'm supposed to be learning something here, but it doesn't feel like I'm learning anything. You ever read the Bible and feel that way? And I want to say, trust the Lord. He's accomplishing his purposes He's not stopping in his ongoing concern and care for you. And when, all, when everything comes to light, when everything comes to pass, everybody's going to know there is one greater than Dumbledore who was with us all the way. There is one greater than Dumbledore who prepared all the world and then orchestrated our lives and then allowed us freedom and gave us the opportunity to engage in this magnificent task. So now here are my three points of application. Number one, in response to Psalm 104, let me urge you to cultivate appetites that God is going to satisfy in the new heavens and new earth. Don't cultivate appetites for things that aren't going to be in the new heavens and new earth. 
Look at verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. If you cultivate appetites for things that the wicked people provide or that the wicked people engage in, they're not going to be in the new heavens and new earth. Your appetites are not going to be satisfied in the new heavens and new earth. So whatever it is that you crave, you need to take that to the Lord and say, conform my cravings to what you've said you're going to do. Second, we need to practice habits that are in accordance with those appetites, right? Your appetites are formed by your habits. And, and you, need to, you need to practice habits that please the Lord because you want to cultivate appetites that God is going to satisfy. And, and this is all related to number three. So these three go together. Place your hope firmly in what God has promised to do. Don't hope for what God hasn't promised. Don't hope for some satisfaction, some, some pleasure that God hasn't said in the Bible, you're going to enjoy this. If you hope for that, you know what you're going to have? Frustration. You're going to be singing like, who is it, Mick Jagger, about how you can't get no satisfaction. That's the way it's going to be forever. Is that who sings that song? There we go. I'm not very good at pop culture references, but sometimes I get one right. Cultivate appetites that God will satisfy. Practice habits that please the Lord. And place your hope firmly in what God has promised to do. Let's pray together. Father, help us trust you. And Lord, help us to pay attention to what you've done in the world. Help us to see the world. And God, use the combination of the general revelation in creation and the special revelation in the Bible Use these things, Lord, to make us those who feel wonder at what you've done. Cause us to, to feel in our souls there is no one like you. And your glory is going to endure forever. Lord, we love you and we want to love you with all that we are. We pray that you'd conform us to the image of Christ and make us people who love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, if there are those here who don't know you, I pray that they would turn from sin and trust in Christ completely, that they would know that you have shown your love by sending your only begotten Son to bear their penalty, to pay their debt, to reconcile them to you. And I pray that your love would overwhelm them and draw them to yourself now. In Christ's name, amen.